Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco, The Girl Next Door. We're going to dedicate today's episode entirely to a discussion we had with author Stephen Graham Jones, who was kind enough to join us for a Halloween horror-themed interview. We asked Stephen to select his favorite horror book for us to read, and he chose The Girl Next Door by Jack Ketchum, and we were horrified. As you'll hear, Todd, Julia, and I thought we were prepared for whatever kind of crazy, scary book Stephen could throw at us, but we really weren't. It's a disturbing book in ways that none of us really expected, but Stephen's an incredibly smart guy, and by the end of our talk, I think we all ended up uh, glad that we had read it. So, we hope you enjoy our discussion, and happy Halloween. It's now the match. It's now the monster match. The monster match. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the match. We are joined by a very special guest. A very special guest. Now, this is a man who I have to admit I met once in the bottom of a dark hotel. I've met a lot of men in that way. And the kids, if you're listening out there, there's nothing wrong with that. It's normal. And... And we, as your hosts, support this. Um, But we are joined by Stephen Graham Jones. And I first met Stephen when we were on a panel at AWP in Denver. Is that where we were? Yeah, it was 2008, I believe. 2008. We were on a panel about writing genre fiction at AWP, which is the annual conference of writing programs. And it was me and Stephen and Mark Haskell-Smith and Brian Evanson uh, and then two other people, Anthony Neal Smith and someone else. Someone I'm forgetting, perhaps intentionally. And <laughs> Stephen was talking about writing horror fiction, um, particularly writing horror fiction in, and teaching horror fiction in uh, a college setting. And I was immediately smitten by the fact that the dude was the most genius man I'd ever heard talk about genre fiction. And I knew that I had to get to know this man intimately, or at least be his friend, and then hire him as well to be a professor, which is exactly what I did. So Stephen Graham Jones is my colleague at UC Riverside's MFA program. But on top of all of that, he is the author of 17, 18, 19 books. How many um, is it now? 22. 22. That's insane. Yeah. Jesus. Good for you. Oh, my God. That's a lot of books. His, <laughs> uh, his current book, After the People Lights Have Gone Off, was just released from Dark House. It's a collection of horror stories. Um, But Stephen has written horror, he's written zombies, he's written contemporary regular literary fiction, he's done a little bit of everything. He is also a former NEA fellow, he holds a PhD from Florida State, he is a professor at the University of Colorado, in addition to working at UC Riverside. He has been a finalist for or winner of basically every single possible genre fiction award (laughs) in the country, including the Bram Stoker Award and the Shirley Jackson Award. He is um, basically the foremost expert on zombie fiction in the world and zombies in general and uh, collects knives. The dude has more knives than your average serial killer. And it's, it's, it's really quite frightening. How many knives do you have, Stephen? I don't know. I probably have 40, 45. <laughs> but, and you, al- you always have one on you. Yeah, I do. You know, one time I came to L.A., my first time to come to L.A., it was like 02 or so. I did carry on, so I couldn't bring a knife with me, mm-hmm. and so I was too scared to go anywhere. I only went through drive-throughs to eat, and it's my event, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Is this all because you know something about the impending zombie problem we're going to have, and you know that knives are the most efficient way to survive? Is that what this is about, or how did you get into this? 
How did I get into knives? Yeah. I got into knives. I got into knives because I'm really scared of guns, I think. I use guns to hunt, but I'm terrified of guns. That is but not going to help you. Can... A knife against a gun? <laughs> There's literally an aphorism about this. <laughs> not bringing a knife to a gunfight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you wanted to so... be armed, but guns are too scary. I get it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm stupid with guns. Guns always go off when... I don't mean for them to, and a knife doesn't go off when you don't mean for it to. You know that makes me a lot more comfortable. That's one of the scariest I, sentences I've ever heard. I don't, when I was say. okay, so when I was eighteen, I took a big, like an epic road trip across the country with mm-hmm. uh, two of my best friends, and we decided that we should have weapons, you know, to defend <laughs> ourselves. Yeah, and so yeah. we all went out and bought, like, you know, the the maximum carry blade, which is like three mm-hmm. inches or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we like have, and, and like in retrospect, thank God nothing happened because I'm like, what would I do with a knife? Like the thought of stabbing somebody is so scary. Like that terrifies me. The, the thought of actually taking a blade and putting it. And so I'm like, I don't, I would never carry a knife now because I'd be so scared. I'd much rather just get the shit beaten out of me. You know, like if I pull a knife on somebody, then I either have to use it. That's horrible. Or they're going to either pull a knife or a gun on me and right. then everything's fucked. Yeah, if you don't know how oh. to use a knife, all that's going to happen is the bad motherfucker who's attacking you yeah. does yeah. and is going to right. disarm you and cut your throat. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But, but I've, know, I've gotten into this argument with a friend of mine who's like, mm-hmm. but the knife ends the conversation. You know, his whole thing is like, I pull out a knife and the conversation's over. They're not going to fight with me. They're... And I'm like, yeah, you're because... just upping the ante. You know, it's like, it's over so he, because... for him, it's like a bluff move, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's but, over no, because but, whoever well, he's no, talking this, to thinks this... he's insane. Right. Like, no, no. Not... I think... I think what what ends the what ends the confrontation if you've got somebody on the street at two in the morning, is if you you pull out your knife you know and it's big or little and you, and instead of instead of thre- instead of threatening him with it you like just take your hand and you just cut your own hand you know and I think yeah, I think yeah. that ends the this is like this is good yeah. this is like the, I like you Stephen yeah yeah. There there, yeah, this is like the the throw up on a person defense. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If, if somebody's coming at you, just vomit on them, and they will be so horrified and disgusted. You know, yeah, like yeah. I've actually thought about this. I'm like, I, yeah. I would be so emotional if I ever got to the point where I was ready to get in a fight with somebody. I know I would be crying and snotting, <laughs> and like I'd probably just be able to vomit spontaneously. It would be the best defense. They actually oh. teach that in self defense. Like if you can vomit yeah. on yourself, and really. You know, yeah, if you're, yeah. I mean, it's obviously not ideal, but uh, in a date rape situation, for example, you're going to become very a lot dark, less attractive. Very quickly. Yeah, I yeah. thought we were supposed to start off light and then oh, descend yeah. into the girl so, next well, door. Wait, I have, I've got a knife. Can we tell you all a knife story? Yes. I've got a knife story? Yeah. You know that game you play when you're a kid or when you're in high school, I guess, where you, you stand there across from somebody and you're throwing a knife at your foot? Who can get the closest? Did you ever play that? No. No, no, no. Steven. Okay. No. Because well, I grew up with Jews, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we, we played a lot. We, we had a knife and we had a lot of dirt, so we played that game. And, um, and I was playing with my friend once. <laughs> That's what you do when you and, have um, a lot of dirt. I guess we didn't have enough dirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had a lot in West Texas. But... He threw it, and it went through the outside sole of his shoe and stuck in the ground. And he said, that's it. He wins. He wins like you put dollars down, you know, to up the ante every time. He, he, he started to get the pot, and I said, no, no, wait. And so I reared back, and I kept my foot where it was, and I threw it down. I threw it right through the top of my foot, and it came out the bottom. And my, my shoe filled up with blood instantly, and it was a huge mess. I had to go to the hospital and everything, but I won the money, you know. How because much you got win? the most injured? I was, 
Well, because I got closest to my foot, you know? Yeah, you got <laughs> you can close. Your, your foot. foot. You got your foot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was like $3 or something. Right, I, don't, oh, I don't know God. about you, Stephen. I gotta be yeah. honest. This is very Julia strange. keeps going back and forth about you. <laughs> I, well, Stephen... I don't understand why you would get in a knife-throwing contest of throwing a knife at yourself. Uh, I thought it was at the other person. <laughs> Do you remember? Do you remember what was it? It was Alien, wasn't it? Where, right. Where he's going around boom, the boom, hand. Boom. Yeah, right. I, that used to be my game. I'd play that in the cafeteria of my school in sixth grade until there was a big old puddle of blood around my hand and to be splashing everywhere. Oh and my god! It was. I've had to swear that game off because it was tearing me up too much. But that, it was. It's really fun well, to. Like when? When did you? Did you swear this off before you had children, or <laughs> like in the last five uh, years? When did you swear I, it off? I swore it off. Yeah, I swore it off probably in high school sometime because I was using somebody dared me to use a big old steak knife, and I used it, and I hit the bone in my thumb, <gasps> and then I, then I went to the lake later that day, and my hand got all infected, so oh. I had to that quit, man. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh. Um, can I ask something about zombies? Yes. Okay, so uh, we were talking about this last week as we were getting excited to have you um, on. So can you just pitch us why zombies are, why do you love zombies so much? Why are they important? Because I think Ryder and I agree that zombies are not the ideal supernatural villain because they don't have a lot of personality. So They don't. That, that's why, that's why zombie, that's why zombies took a long time to, to rise into the, the forefront of our, you know, our pop culture because it's because they don't have personality because actors don't want to play them. Actors used to want to play Jekyll and Hyde so they could show their range. You know, they want to play werewolves mm -hmm. because they can do the transformation, but um, they don't want to play the zombie. Even in the zombie movies you see with um, big name actors in it, they're never the zombies. You know, they're always the zombie killer. As for why we turn into this zombie boom, um, it's the easy reason is that vampires quit being scary. You know, they lost their teeth. They got, they got sparkly. Mm -hmm. um, but also, <laughs> also it was just a really, really fortunate thing that in 2002, we, the zombie became scary on screen again with 28 days later, they became fast. Great right. movie. Right. Yeah. For a long time, they had been, they'd been shamblers and who, who cares about a shambler? One shambler in a warehouse is not nothing to be scared of. One, one rage zombie in a whole city is something to be terrified of. And we got that. That was like the first part of a punch. And then the, the, the number two part of that was Max Brooks giving us a zombie survival guide in, what, 2003, I guess. And yeah. and then he propped up the whole zombie boom with uh, World War Z, which is a really, really solidly, solidly written, written book. Um, and... Mean, I mean, we had a lot of stuff in between there. You had Brian, Brian Keane doing stuff. Jonathan Mayberry's coming on. You had a lot of people doing zombie stuff. But um, what happened was we started, we started to read George Romero's zombie works as being these big shambling metaphors, which who knows if he meant them like that in the first place. But mm -hmm. that keyed us in, or it keyed a new generation of writers in to use the zombie as like a blank metaphoric space to pour into whatever they wanted to say. Right. So we've been doing that for better than a decade right now. And I think zombies with World War Z, the movie, that's kind of the peak. And I think it's coming downhill now. I think the studios and the publishers will keep marketing it to us, marketing it to us. But I think we're ready for another creature right now. Yeah. And also because zombies will never be romantic. People are like, how do you keep growing the audience if you're just scared of them you're scared of them and you know eventually you shoot their heads off yeah. and they can't attack you so that yeah. doesn't have to be that there's that evolution of them into a romantic creature i guess there's that warm bodies book and movie. yeah there's 
There's a, there's a couple of zombie romance things, but I think really what we as an audience are romantically fascinated with or associated with is, is concerned zombies isn't the zombie itself. It's the apocalypse or the post-apocalypse, and the right. zombie is just a figuration of that. So we're drawn. We, we see ourselves on a path that doesn't go to happy places, so we tell ourselves stories about what's going to come, and the zombies are just like a side effect of what's coming. Hmm. Right. So, like, for instance, if they were a a super virus that started in texas yeah like that could happen <laughs> that could happen yes that could happen i feel yeah, like no- i feel like we're ready for ghosts to come back i'm waiting for ghosts i love ghosts ghosts have been ghosts? Time, yeah. it's time for ghosts again unless something new is gonna emerge like cyclops or something uh, yeah well but- i mean we can't we kind of cycle through werewolves zombies and vampires in a pretty predictable mm-hmm. pattern we never we never quite go so far as mermaids or mummies or anything they they don't <laughs> they don't trend the same way you know who cares if mermaids take over the world we might want mermaids to take over the world you know well but at now least, at least as, a, as a former as a former werewolf um, myself <laughs> or one who a kid who believed he was a werewolf for all the first grade there has not been a good werewolf movie yet like since like this whole new crop of werewolf stuff like didn't Wes Craven have the curse or something yeah, yeah, he and did. then the new wolfman was horrible like none of these movies hold a candle to like the vampire movies or the zombie movies That's I'm true. wondering if like the werewolf has kind of faded like comp- like because it, it really hasn't been done well well it hasn't well, would... well if you've seen oh go on I just want to say I think the best representation of the werewolf that I've seen in the last, you know, 10 years is actually in Harry Potter. Because mm-hmm. it takes yeah, so right. long oh, to right. emerge. And you, no, you know. Yeah. So I, no, I agree. Yeah. So what Professor were you Lupin, say, Professor, Professor Lupin is, I think, one of the most, one of the prettiest werewolves we've got. Because he doesn't burn all his <laughs> calories growing extra fur. <laughs> and he's long, he's, he's long and lean and lithe. He can run mm-hmm. through the woods like a werewolf should be able to. And he's hungry and it hurts him, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I like Lupin. I like Lupin a lot as well. Although I think we are rounding the corner as far as werewolf movies go. There's one that just popped. Um, Direct-to-video. It's called Were. W-E-R. Mm-hmm. It's, a new ta- it's, a new, it's a new take on the werewolf. And it's a very, very solidly done werewolf. And I hope oh, it kind cool. of... Yeah, I hope it tokens better stuff to come, you know? Yeah. So, Stephen, how did you first get into uh, into horror? Like, was that what you were reading from a really young age? And did you always know that's what you wanted to write? Or did you have a period where you wanted to just be, you know, Raymond Carver? Where horror started for me was, um, I'm four years old. No, I'm probably five years old, maybe five and a half. I'm sleeping on my grandmother's living room floor, way deep in the country, man. Like, there was no lights forever and ever around. I'm sleeping there. It's two in the morning or so, and there comes a knock on the door, and I, I get up in my blanket because it's freezing, and I go, I go answer it, and it's my aunt and uncle. They're, you know, like 17, 14. They just got married. They're living in a little trailer way on the edge of the property, and they're wrapped in a blanket too. And they say, "Hey, Stevie, can we come sleep on the floor with you?" And I said, "Sure, but why?" And because and the, this aunt and uncle, they were like giants to me. You know how your high school cousins or uncles and stuff are when you're a kid mm-hmm. they're, they're, ama- right. they're amazing they're titans on the landscape and <laughs> they wanted to come sleep on the floor because they were scared and i said well, well, what, what scared you and they said we just went and saw halloween at the drive-in and we can't sleep at our own place and um and <laughs> and i distinctly remember stepping aside and holding the screen door open so they could come in in their blanket and looking out into the pasture past them into that blackness and thinking what could have done this and i think that's probably where my horror fascination or impulse mm. comes from. Yeah. 
Wow. I just saw Halloween again. Um, mm-hmm. there, there was a screening here in LA, wow. and Jamie Lee Curtis and um, John Carpenter were both yep. there. Cool. It was pretty amazing. It was pretty cool. It was so good to see again because it's one of those movies you just take for granted now. It's like mm-hmm. you know, oh, it's yeah, it's the classic. It's the great you know independent film that sort of changed the entire film landscape. But then you actually watch it. It is so formally beautiful. Like it is just mm-hmm. amazingly shot and horribly acted. <laughs> it's 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 like everything wrong with John Carpenter in, in one movie. You see, like he just doesn't know how to get actors or characters, but it doesn't matter because his shots are so yeah. good, and you're yeah. still so unnerved and scared. You don't even know why half the time. You're mm-hmm. just like, oh, I know. And it's so manipulative. I loved mm-hmm. it. It was so fun to see, and I like I came out so inspired. I was like, I gotta make yeah. a movie. I gotta make a movie right now because it was mm-hmm. you know it's so clearly done with passion and. For no money, it was an, it was amazing. It was so great. Yeah, it was so it, great I just I just, I just watched all nine of those over the past few days, and it's oh it was really God. it was wow. really neat catching catching up with them. It was so all cool. nine. You watched every all single nine, one. Man. I watched every single one. Yeah, Jesus. just getting ready for the season, you know. But it, you know that, that there, movie. Wait, wait, wait. Is there yeah. a reason, or that's just how you relax? No, that's how that's how I wind down. I've been writing mm-hmm. a novel, so I'm, you have to wind down from writing a novel. Mm-hmm. You know, there's porn. There's porn now. I don't, I don't know if you know about that. There's porn now. Yeah. It's horror porn. Yeah. <laughs> this is probably horror porn. So, well. so Stephen, when you when you first read a horror novel, did you say, "Oh my God, this is scaring me," and I want to know how and why it's scaring me, or were you just like, "Oh, I like this idea of being afraid"? I think the second, I like the idea of being afraid. I like. I liked that I could not put the book down, that I had to stay up reading it the whole night until the sun broke because I was too scared. You know, I li- that's that's what that's what draws me to horror now is that horror can elicit a visceral response from you that you're not voluntarily giving. Um, like horror can make you run up the stairs to turn to your bed and that kind of stuff, or not turn the light off. Um, I think most other fiction you have to invite it in. Horror can work on you whether you invite it in or not. And I really like, I like that aspect of it a lot. Mm. Wow. When, when, when you're writing though, do you, are you, are you aware of like, like, is there a formula for you to set up the fright or is it accumulation of details? It's, yeah, it's accumulation of details. I think it's, I mean, you want to, you want to spin a scene so that it's suspenseful. Definitely. You want to ramp it up. You want to give some false scares. You want to do some pressure release valves of laughter, but, um, I think it is accumulation of details because what accumulation of details leads to is a sense of dread. What dread is, dread is sitting in your living room and wondering who's going to knock on your door. Terror is opening that door and seeing who's there. You know, mm-hmm. and what I, I think mm-hmm. what a horror novel can do best is instill a sense of dread in you. Mm-hmm. And I think small details do that. Like the, the window flutters, you see a pair of headlights go past, you hear a footstep in the backyard. That those kind of little details, up the tension, jack up the suspense until you want to scream. And can you still be scared by a book that you're reading? Definitely. I get scared when I'm, well, first of all, when I'm writing my own stuff, I get terrified. I have to set up all these, <laughs> I have to so set up, cool. yeah, I have to set up all these baffles in the hall so that if my dogs or my wife or my kids come through, I can hear them coming a few feet off because if I can, I'll jump out of my skin. It really, really gets to me. <laughs> and when I write, every time I write horror, I think that's it. I got it out of my head this time. It's all gone. But man, sure. Cause that's really what I want to do with horror. I want to get all the bad stuff out of my head, but mm-hmm. As soon as I get out of my head, more wells up, and I just keep writing horror. 
So does it, do the stories come to you? Like, I, you know, I think, I think about just like my own personal experience and there's, you know, there's always some tiny piece of me that goes into mm-hmm. a story, even if I'm writing about something completely outside of my mm-hmm. own experience. So when you're writing horror, like when you're writing the stories that are in the latest book, mm-hmm. are you, are you still taking a part of your life and putting it in there? Are you putting your fears in or is it just mm-hmm. the emotional subtext? What, what aspect of reality is there? You can't avoid the emotional subtext, of course, I don't think. But yes, they are things that scare me. Um, like, I don't know, clowns. Well, I know everybody's afraid of clowns, and I'm not saying I'm tough I'm tough or anything, but clowns are not my pet scary thing, you know? So I don't know if I'll ever write a scary clown story, but people with dog heads, that terrifies me into, like, being paralyzed. <laughs> I've never people thought about that. People with dog heads? Yeah. Something so, I've never so I've considered. A... I guess I would be scared. <laughs> no, that's... that's... That, that's one of my most real fears is walk I'm afraid I'm gonna walk around a corner one otherwise normal day and I'm gonna walk in the chest of somebody and look up and he's gonna have a dog snout and that like what kind of dog like a Bichon frise or like a like, like a, a like a <laughs> no a shih tzu'd be funny but like a Weimaraner yeah. that is very strange what an odd fear I like it really I think it's a rational it's a very rational fear to me <laughs> Wasn't that the thing about fears so that like, you actually had? So, like, when you go to somebody's house and they have a print of those dogs playing poker, oh, yeah. that's like your worst nightmare. Yeah, that's that's really really bad. And when the, when those commercials come on, those insurance commercials with dogs, oh, that's just yeah. That, I like, don't like when dreams. like animal mouths like you know are CGI'd to talk. I don't like mm-hmm. that. Oh mm-hmm. no, that scares me. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's so weird. Yeah, yeah. Like mm-hmm. there's those commercials for the beans, and it's some guy and his dogs always talking to him about his beans. You guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, that's right. Yeah, he says he likes them, like they're bushes beans or yeah, something. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that yeah. that commercial creeps me the fuck out. Like, yeah, like yeah. I think we all sort of intellectually think that our dogs or or cats or whatever are smart and have human qualities. But the fact of the matter is that, is that if I walked into the room and my dog Scout said, "Hey, what's up, Todd?" I would shit myself. Definitely. And dive out the Definitely. But you know, at this, I'm scared of a person with a dog head. A dog with a person head is just a curiosity to me. That doesn't scare me mm-hmm. the same way. Yeah, yeah. interesting. What is the scariest book you've ever read? The one we're talking about tonight. Wow. wow. Yeah. Okay. This, this is a pretty awful, scary Great. book. We'll get to it in just one second. So be- before we before we get to the book, let me ask you just one one more question. So, as it relates to horror, do you prefer the movies or the books? I know obviously you write the books, but for the sheer fright. I think the books, I think, you know, I think the scariest book I've read is probably Sarah Grand's Come Closer. I think you've read that as well. Mm-hmm. And that book, that that book totally corrupted my dreams in my sleep for many months. Um, I think a book can finally stick with you longer. With a movie, you can take a movie apart a little bit in a way, it's more difficult to take a book apart. For me, anyways. Maybe because I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, maybe that's true because, like, and we've talked a lot about this on the show, but I just remember as a kid, the books that really scared me, I had to put those books in a different room as though yeah, that yeah. book could, you know, strangle me in the night. 
You know, that the book that we're reading tonight, The Girl Next Door, that's how I got that book. Many years ago, a horror reviewer, that was her job, was reviewing horror novels. She wrote me an email, or she called me, I forget, and she said, hey, um, will you do me a favor? And I said, sure, whatever. And she said, I've got this book to review, and I don't want it in my house anymore. I read it, but I don't want it on my shelf. Can I mail it to you? <laughs> and so she mailed me The Girl Next Door, and I read it. <laughs> that is well, incredible. That's this, a great story, is, and that's how so I this feel about the book, too. It's a kind of how I feel too. I like don't want it on my shelf. Yeah, it's totally I'm gonna, true. I'm it's, going to I've never the felt that way in my life. I've never felt that way in my life. I was like, I don't want this in my house. Never. I'm like, I don't want my kid accidentally finding this book one day, because you know, like I want to encourage reading, and I want to be able to say, read everything, read everything your dad has. Except this book? Like, how can I do that? I have to burn it. I have to burn it right now. I'm going to burn it on air. That's how much I hate this book. But I love it at the same time because of that. I mean, that is insane. Yeah. That, so, that yeah. I've never had a book produce this kind of reaction from me. It's well, really let's uh, let's start at the beginning here. So, Stephen, yeah. you, you yeah. asked us to read Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, which was a book mm-hmm. I'd never heard of by an author I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. And then I went and looked online to buy it and to get an actual imprint copy of the book was like $250 or something if you mm-hmm. wanted a first edition mm-hmm. and I couldn't figure out why and then I googled yeah, it see, in and... my, my mind I was thinking this is a lost masterpiece yeah. this is like some no it's, no, it's, it's lost because people have fucking... thrown it away yeah people are like burying it in their yards or lighting it on yes. fire because so, nobody wants this book let alone publish it Jesus even before we get into the existential yeah. pain that all of us have suffered <laughs> tell us a little bit about Jack Ketchum and tell us about this book. Jack Ketchum, he's a nice, nice guy. You wouldn't guess it reading this book. <laughs> no, reading no, his, no, you wouldn't. Great guy. <laughs> Weirdest <Yeah>. introduction. <laughs> great guy. No, he really is a great guy. He's a legit, and he's really a brainy dude, too. He's smart, and he's, he's just really talented. Um, as for this girl next door, this is the one that Stephen King made Stephen King, not made him, it got Stephen King to say Jack Ketchum is the scariest man in America, I think it was. Um, the original cover for this book, y'all may have seen it when you were searching it up, has that cheerleader a skeleton jumping on the front of the cover. It's yeah. no, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of ridiculous. It doesn't yeah, match the book the worst at all. cover for it. It doesn't make yeah, any terrible, sense. Terrible. Doesn't make any sense, and you also get a lot of Elisha Cuthbert hits when you search for this book too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, <laughs> um, but the girl next door it's had you know i just recently saw a list of the 100 best horror novels ever and this was number one horror fans horror fans really really like this book and it's not because they um endorse it or endorse what happens in it necessarily it's because it works so effectively as horror i think so the fact that and we'll get to the plot just one second the fact that it is so hard to find and the fact that Mm -hmm. i I think i get looks like amazon um, reprinted the the ebook last year. Mm-hmm. It's been out of mm-hmm. print for a long time. Even though they made a movie of it in two thousand seven, mm-hmm. is has it always was it a controversial book and we all just never heard of it, or mm-hmm. do do did publishers say we can't we don't want to publish this thing? <laughs> no, I think it it was controversial, but I think it was controversial. And then it was under horror, too. So then it became easy for the public at large to kind of disregard. They say, oh, it's them horror people doing their horror stuff. Whereas a book like Samuel Delaney's Hog, which is just as intense, I think, it gets it gets higher visibility because it's 
playing outside of a genre umbrella. And so hmm. people feel like they have to interact with it differently, I guess. But when something is horror, I think the critics and the public feel like they can write it off. They don't have to engage it. But I think it's a very important book to engage myself. Yeah. So, Ryder, why don't you tell us the plot? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me... You know, it's funny because like, I didn't know anything about this book. And, and, and like mm-hmm. as usual, I kept that it that way. I didn't look anything up. I mm-hmm. didn't read the back mm-hmm. of the cover. I just started the book. And for the first 80 pages or so, it is an incredibly well-written coming-of-age story, mm-hmm. very much in the vein of the stuff that Todd and I have talked about loving before mm-hmm. on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nostalgic... Um, looking back on a sort of, you know, a boyhood in a suburban town with a little bit of a rural environment. Um, and it was, it's so well written. It's, it's, the details are incredible. And I just got into the book and I started recommending it to my wife <laughs> and everybody around me because I was like, this is going to be great. In about, you know, 20 pages, a ghost is going to show up or the girl next door is going to turn out to be already dead. And, Which is you know, what it's going to have some that horror. That's exactly and, what I thought. Right, of course, because it's called The Girl Next Door. And right. I knew we were reading a horror book. So I was waiting for some sort of supernatural element to enter the story, which in a way would have been a wonderful release <laughs> <Yes>. valve. And, <laughs> and it would have made it, uh, you know, a class. I, 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 I was like, this is a Stephen King, pre-Stephen King book. This is like, this is, reminds me of Stand By Me and, and all those great Stephen King stories about, you know, Hearts in Atlantis and all those th- sort of books about childhood that he writes about mm-hmm. the 50s. And then it just took such a dark turn and very quickly, I'm like right about a page 100, and then it just descends from there into hell. such realistic hell, <laughs> torture. It becomes... Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I you know, in in the film world, it would be called torture porn, um, you know, and it would be in the 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 great Eli Roth tradition of Hostel and those kinds of you know, in the Saw movies. But there's something about this book that is way more real and way more awful than I think any of those movies, um, and it's still incredibly well written. I mean, that's the part that we can't really get around is that the quality of the writing in term from like just top down the 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 characters. Um, the, the prose itself is so clean and simple. Mm-hmm. The pacing is amazing. It's just a it's a fucking masterpiece of writing, right. but it's also about the most horrific thing in the world. Um, it's just, I don't know how much we want to give away we, the plot, but essentially we the girl can give next away door, all of it because after so? we're done talking about yeah. it, because we actually well the part of this is is like I feel bad because the more we talk about how awful and crazy and how much I wish I hadn't read this book, the more people are just going to go out and buy it to read it. So you know when I was. Todd and Julie and I were emailing each other earlier today and I was like, it's like two girls, one cup. It's like when you hear about it, you're going to fucking click on it and then you're going to wish you had never fucking clicked on it. But in this book, I almost feel it's worse because it, you feel complicit because you've read this book. Right. Because part of enjoying the book, and I'm saying enjoying with scare quotes mm-hmm. that you can't mm-hmm. see, dear mm-hmm. listener, but uh, enjoying the book is enjoying partly enjoying watching a girl get tortured and raped and murdered ultimately because since we're giving everything away Mm -hmm. um it's you know it's essentially a a, a girl trapped in a basement and the entire town turning on her um and yeah so i mean it's 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 a highly upsetting book and i think mm -hmm. the thing that Ryder says about it being like stand by me is really true because for the first 85 pages i was like oh you know what this is better than Stand By Me because it's darker me, and me it's too. weirder and I'm really liking, you know, the undertones. 
And then when the neighbor girl is chained in the basement and all of the kids in the neighborhood come to rape her, that that felt a little more difficult than Stand By Me, quite frankly. Well, yeah. I was, so I was I think... absolutely shocked. Like, I, I, was, I was beyond shocked. Okay. So I think a reference that we must bring up, must, is this is Stand By Me meets Flowers in the Attic. That is what's happening here. It's no, an adult. That's not, that's not strong enough. Yeah, no, but it is because what what you guys haven't mentioned at all is that what this a huge part of what this book is about is the powerlessness of children under um, adult rule, a mentally unstable adult, yes. and the powerlessness of children to ask for help. So right. well, you know, it's got a huge. I mean, that is the only way the plot can function at all. And also, very specifically, the powerlessness of women too. Right. That is a huge. Mm-hmm. Right, and there's some incest, so there's that bit. Yeah, yeah, yes. You know, it's it's a it's a totally different book if Ruth is male, isn't it? A totally different book. Yeah, Um, it was really wise. Yeah, yeah. So let's just name the characters. So Don, uh, I'm sorry, Davy is our narrator, and Davy lives as a kid next door to a family that has three boys in it um, that you know are around his age. There's one younger, a lot younger than him. Uh, D- Davy's like twelve, I think, right? Right. Am I that yeah. Right? right. So they're all around f- around twelve years old, and then that family of boys—it's um, three boys and their mother, Ruth—and Ruth, and Ruth um, ends up her sister and her brother-in-law die in a car accident, so she inherits two their two kids, which are an older girl named Meg, who I think is about fourteen or fifteen, maybe sixteen or somewhere around she, there. I think she's fifteen. Yeah. Okay, 15. And then younger Susan, who is um, disabled from the accident and is now wearing braces. And Ruth um, abuses both the girls, but especially takes out her vengeance on um, on, uh, on Meg, the older girl, because uh, Ruth has is just, you know, just coming undone and she's blaming this young little whore for all of her problems in her life. And, and we should note that that's not Ryder's opinion. <laughs> that's that's how she's described in the book by Ruth. Ryder's Ruth, not Ruth is taking out all her anger on men and other women and her mm-hmm. miserable life. And it, oh, it's just, it's so messed up. But it goes so deep into the psychology of all of these characters so realistically that like, I, you know, I think part of, like Stephen, what you just said about if it was a man, it would almost be like, oh, that crazy psychopath mm-hmm. next door, mm-hmm. or that crazy mm-hmm. psycho. But instead, it's like the friendly mom next door mm-hmm. who takes Davy in, and before you know, you get the sense that leading up until these girls enter their lives, that Ruth has been this really like the cool mom, the mm-hmm. one who lets them drink beers and lets them swear and knows their games and plays with them and is mm-hmm. like lets them watch whatever they want on TV. So. The fact that that is the the villain, you know, who goes incredibly psychotic in such a perfectly progressive manner um, is really, really disturbing. And it's really hard to read. Yeah. And yet you can't stop. It really is uh, hard to read. But, you know, I've read this book. I read this book. This was my 10th time through this book in the past God. probably six years, I guess. And yeah. I read this book to remind me, to remind myself that my horror is just rainbows and flowers and unicorns that I'm not really doing real horror. I try to do real horror. I try to be scary, but I don't know if I can look at things as directly as Jack Ketchum does in this book. Mm-hmm. And in, honestly, in some of his other books as well, but I think you're, you're hitting on exactly what, how this, the dynamic of how this novel works. Um, 
Ketchum is disallowing us. He's making us stay in the main hall. He never allows us to dismiss the horror. If it was a ghost or a vampire, we could go home and say, oh, ghosts aren't real, vampires aren't real, I can go to sleep. Um, but people are real. We have to deal with, with Ruth being real. And if it were a guy, we could say it's a psychopath next door, like you say, but mm. it's, 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 it's Ruth. And she should be nice to these girls who have already had such badness visited upon them. But mm. um, they don't. Life is not fair in this book, in this world. And we feel like this is our world, too, which makes it even more scary. Right. Well, one thing that is He sets it up as sort of the, the Pollyanna romantic time of our youth, the 1950s, when everyone knew each other mm -hmm. on the street and mm -hmm. it's a small town mm -hmm. America and you know the local cop because the local cop is your neighbor. All, mm -hmm. I mean, all these... He, he does a great job of setting us up for the nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And the horrifying thing is that even in whenever the better time was, of course people were getting raped and killed. Mm -hmm. Of course children were being abused. Of course behind closed doors people were alcoholics and incestuous and all these horrible mm -hmm. things. He, and so that's, when I was reading the book, that was the thing that I was like, oh man, he has set us up for, for this yellowed past and then right. has shown us it's always for like been a, horrible. A great coming of age story right. with like a little peek behind the curtain about how things could be dark. And instead it's like, no, we're going to start you with the coming of age stories and then mm -hmm. rip the fucking curtain aside right. and push you out on stage. Mm -hmm. and, oh, mm -hmm. oh, it's so, awful. so, okay. So one thing that's interesting about this book is it is based on a true event, but um, yeah. And writer told me that to make me feel better about it. I don't know what the, <laughs> What the Can hell I explain my logic? Uh, I, 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 my experience was that I was I, I read this book and you know, I I was so disturbed and I couldn't help but you know feel uh, but blame Jack Ketchum in a way yeah. for his imagination right? right because it's like why would you even think of writing this fucking book you know you mm -hmm. asshole why would you even go there and take me someplace that is so otherworldly bad human depths of depravity it's like you know i don't want to read a book about something that is just this awful and then mm -hmm. when i found out that it was based on a real event and that like 90 percent of the awful things that are visited upon this young girl actually happened mm -hmm. to the young girl in real life i suddenly was like oh wow i can see why he heard about this mm -hmm. real life murder and and actually, you know, decided that it's a, it's a, it, I guess it just changed the creative project for me. It changed the creative project yeah. from him being sadistic towards me as a reader and more toward, you know, more about him trying to come to terms with something that actually did already right. happen. I mean, so it yes, made me, yeah. I, there's some major things that were changed. I mean, the torture incidents were Correct, but Correct. Um, one thing that's really interesting is that the people, so a huge part of this novel, huge, is the sexual fantasies that all the boys have, and it's extremely rapey, and there's actual rape in it, and even we're even getting it through this confused, you know, coming-of-age mm -hmm. sexual lens, mm -hmm. but the people who actually tortured and killed her were girls. Right. Um, mm -hmm as well as a couple boys. So that is a wildly, I mean, that, that I, I'm just so curious now about the actual event as opposed to this. And I, I do think it makes nostalgic a real event by putting this, you know, like stand by me lens on it. Um, it, it weirdly, but I, I do think it was a really interesting choice to abandon that, you know, 
to abandon that point of view. That really, I wish that it was more, um, that it had dealt more directly with that because that's absolutely fascinating, especially in light of the mother character. Mm-hmm. And we get deep into the psychology of the boys, but we do not get deep into the psychology of the victims, which is very, mm-hmm. you know, very upsetting to read. I, I don't know. I'm still, like, grappling with that idea because, you know, you come away from this book feeling like the narrator is a victim, and, of course, he's grappling with that himself. Is he a victim? Is he complicit? Is he a perpetrator? Whatever. But that's not the question that I want to be walking away from this narrative with. I mean, this is a real girl that was tortured and killed, mm-hmm. and we do not get her point of view. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, we're sexualizing her as much as these fictional 12-year-olds are, which I know is a huge part of the point of it. But it's mm-hmm. it, it's a lens that we can't ignore, that yeah. Jack Ketchum has chosen to take this nostalgic figure and tell us the story that way, rather than dealing directly with the victim's point of view. And I, I love I love the way he leads us into that by early on in the novel, somewhere in those first eighty five pages, they're talking about a playboy like you do in a tent, right. you know, and and they're 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 objectifying and cutting up Jane Mansfield, is that right? Yes. Talk just talking about her piece by piece, body part by body part, and we we're thinking, oh, this is so innocent. These these boys trying to figure out women and all this stuff, but then mm-hmm. once they're literally taking apart a woman, it changes everything and it escalates and it makes us complicit in the novel, like y'all been right. saying, um, because mm-hmm. our, our, we've, we've been conditioned as readers to identify with the protagonist, with the narrator. Um, and in this case, we do that because Davy, David is the least terrible of all these people. But nevertheless, just because he's the least terrible, that doesn't, that doesn't excuse what he did at all. Right. And mm-hmm. if we're in his shoes, then we're also in that basement watching Meg, yeah. watching these things happen to Meg, and it's really uncomfortable. You know what I, I did wonder as I was reading it is if I had read this book in 1989 when it came out when I was 18 years old, what my experience reading it as a teenage boy would have been like compared to reading it as a 43-year-old man. Mm-hmm. And how, like, like I I was really, I was, you know, it was, just, it was just hard to read. It was, you know, it was sort of a vile experience. But when you're 18 and, you know, you're stupid and you're objectifying women just as part of due course of your dumb life... Like what? What I have just been like, yeah, man. You, what could you have done? I, I have no idea. But and that's the thing that makes me wonder what the reading experience has been like over the years for people who maybe read it for the first time when they were fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, like we all read Stephen King, and then came back to it in their forties and was like, oh my god, this book that I remember is not what I remember. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Yeah, and it kind of brings up the point that people often bring about por- about horror fiction about art in general really is does it need to be responsible does, right. like if if this book falls in the hands of a 13 year old and that 13 year old reads it and his, his or her wiring kind of changes as a result of that what's the whose fault is that is it the parents fault for giving the kid the book i don't think it's jack ketchum's fault at all um, no i mean he he's succeeding i mean he wrote mm-hmm. he wrote a book that's horrifying mm-hmm. and captured the characters in a really accurate way um, he made Ruth, the mother, a believable monster, a human being who is actually a monster. And you, you get her pathology. You get how she's become this creature. The things that she does, the choices that she makes, you know, looking at it as an adult, you, you're like, oh, I've, I've met these crazy people, abusive people before. Mm-hmm. That she's a woman who has her children rape a woman for her, basically, 
is horrifying, but is it any less horrifying than anything we get when we turn on the news and find a guy who's kept four women mm-hmm. nailed to a wall in his house? Well, let's do a let's do a compare and contrast for a second because the book that Stephen King wrote that is closest to this in terms of the world is probably Misery, mm-hmm. um, because you know there's a woman keeping mm-hmm. somebody in a chain down, and and I read Misery when I was probably thirteen or fourteen, mm-hmm. nowhere near this. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the difference? Why? What does what is Stephen King avoiding or withholding or not doing or doing i don't know there's there's it's a different mode completely different mode to me or maybe it's not i don't know maybe i mean i haven't read misery in a long time but what what do you guys think that difference is or can we even pinpoint it i think it's that misery is a little bit it's it's a wonderfully written novel it's a little bit of a spectacle you put your hands over your eyes but you peek through the cracks at it Uh because you want to see the next awful thing she's going to do to him and what little saying she's going to say with the girl next door you put your hands all the way over your eyes and you don't want to look anymore at all. But as for the exact dynamic of how he does that, I don't think anybody's figured that out yet. That's why this is the scariest book. <laughs> well, I think part of it is is point of view. And, you know, marrying that point of view that we love as readers, which misery doesn't even, I mean, there's no children involved at all. Right. And right. it's so sexual. I mean, it's so sexual from start to finish. The page two, right. it gets so sexual. Right. So that which I loved at first, by the way. Like I, mm-hmm. I was so with that because you know I, I love when authors blur the lines between like budding sexuality and danger. You know, because I think mm-hmm. that there's there is something there. You know, I like I, I I've always been fascinated by like what 12 year old boys do like why is like rule breaking somehow a sexual act and like blowing shit up like you have to burn things and like that is a fascinating time to me so i was so into this book and then i was like oh wow it's gonna get dark and you know by the time they're like tying meg up i was like yeah this is gonna get dark and then he's gonna save meg we Mm -hmm. still have 150 pages where it just keeps getting dark and it went too far for me and it was Mm -hmm. like i had to you know pull back and not want to read anymore but of course, kept reading. So you know, I, I felt. Go ahead, Todd. You go. Go ahead, Julie. I I've just it's so well. First of all, I'm fascinated that you guys thought this book was scary. I thought it was completely horrifying, but not scary. Although I will probably have nightmares. It wasn't scary in like a heart thumping way. It was just like this is horrible. So right. that's a different visceral experience for me. But also, the thing is, like, once it got really bad, once they were you know, actually raping and bludgeoning and all that kind of thing. I was actually kind of relieved because then it was back to the horror Mm. genre that I know. It was that middle, it was the middle section of casual torture. And it's even defined that way that I found Mm. so disturbing, so disturbing. Um, Yeah, it was really, really interesting. (laughs) I mean, it's a horrible feeling to feel relief that this thing is reaching its peak. But um, but then it felt fictional yeah. again. It didn't feel like you know there's a girl just hanging in the basement waiting, yeah. you know, and waiting the, for the next. There's bang. something really scary too about um, her disabled little sister, Susan. who Susan, who is sort of complicit in some of the things. I mean, at the at the end, it's a really bizarre scene where they take her crutch to hit somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just mm-hmm. one of the most bizarre moments but here's why i find it scarier than than uh horrifying juliet which is that like when i get to the end of it or something 
yeah, the clown guy has scared me. But to find out that it's a giant spider living into the city, that doesn't scare me. Mm-hmm. That's that's dumb. Right. It's like yeah, you but do you also do. do you remember the other end, the other part of the end of it, where like all the it's similar. All the little kids have sex with the one girl. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's, so weird. It's, I forgot it's about such a that. weird scene. I can see why Stephen King and Jack Ketchum are best friends. <laughs> <laughs> they totally are. But hey, that, does, does that the like, monster that the monster is? Are, are young boys and their mother that that's mm-hmm. horrifying like that's it is i find that scarier than anything else because it's real like the other night my wife wendy and i were watching gravity and i had watched it before and it Terrifying. gave me like profound anxiety that i was gonna float off into space and die and so <laughs> we were wa- watching it at home in the living room and i was like wendy aren't you freaked out don't aren't isn't this like giving you terrible anxiety and she said no and I said, why not? And she said, because I'm never going into space. This is nothing I ever need to worry about. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> but yeah, but for they me, put it as, that's a reality. You know, I agree with you, Todd. That's reality. Like, were you to go to space, that's something that could happen to you. Right. But she was so but, but, clear. I'm never going to space. I don't, I, I don't need to worry about any of this. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the escape club that's the escape button we hit on haunted house movies. We're like they deserve this because they went to that stupid house on top of the hill that everybody says not to go to. So right. the kids deserve to get all chopped up and everything that happens. But um, this is a weird. This is the girl next door is built much more like The Exorcist, where Reagan is lying in her bed at ten years old in Washington D.C. or wherever, and this malevolent demon, which maybe I should just say demon, strikes across the ocean and plants itself in her for no no reason. Nothing that she's done. She didn't spill the milk. She didn't right. push it push a kid into traffic. She did nothing to open the cycle of justice that's now being visited upon her, and neither did Meg. You would think that Meg would get a pass a little bit because mm-hmm. she's had so much badness visited on her, but she doesn't. And that makes it really it leaves it open ended. Or it leaves the cycle of justice open ended. And those kind of stories are the stories that persist, I think. The stories with closed cycles of justice, like the kids going to Crystal Lake to meet Jason, they process you through for ninety minutes or two hundred pages and at the end of it you're done. You're back to the status quo. At the end of the girl next door, you're not back to the same world that you left, I don't think. Right. Yeah, that's true. And the narrator isn't. I mean the narrator yeah. it's yeah. it's no spoiler to say the narrator lives because obviously he's he's the narrator, but Mm-hmm. He, you know, he's successful. That's the other thing, is mm-hmm. that he's gotten past this horrible experience. He's telling the story, and he is a extraordinarily wealthy Wall Street guy driving around mm-hmm. in Mercedes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he, from the outside, it looks like he has ostensibly had a great life because he has the trappings of success. But in fact, you know, he had been as a juvenile party to this horrific abuse rape and murder of a young mm-hmm. girl and that ends up i think the the true story is is similar is that you know all the perpetrators of this ended up living until they ended up dying of mm-hmm. cancer or mm-hmm. in prison or whatever no one no one got away from from the actual murder well except for one guy who i think i, I read up on it today ended up as a pastor or something after doing wow. some time um oh there's a whole website that I got. I went deep into the fucking rabbit hole today. There's there, there's a lot of websites devoted to the real story, but there's one that's like it's got like eighty seven thousand pages of it. And has all the testimony from the trial and all this stuff. Wow. And I was I was getting a little too into it, and I was like, you know what? I number one, I have a book I need to be writing, and number two, I don't. 
knowing the reality of it makes this this horrible reading experience I just had worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. But you know that but but David is an adult being a Wall Street broker and having a Mercedes and all that it's totally a reflection in the contemporary world of the nostalgic mm-hmm. world where mm-hmm. the circle the cycle of justice is open the cycle of justice justice is still open because in a just world David would have been punished in right. an unjust world he gets to be successful the cycles yeah. of justice are not closed yeah no I I think that that's definitely part of the the broader social critique that's that's mm-hmm. clearly in this book you know it's encoded in the book. I mean, especially mm-hmm. that that sequence when when Davy is trying to get help and mm-hmm. go. You know, there's this whole discussion. It's it's right on, around like page 150 of the book. Where there's this whole discussion about how pretty much everyone in the town knew that Meg was was being abused mm-hmm. at least on some level. They didn't know mm-hmm. how extreme, and there was acceptance of that abuse. There was acceptance, mm-hmm. and and then there's this amazing scene where he asks his dad and you're sort of like, yeah, this is going to be it. This is going to be the beginning. And you know, I should have known better, but Mm -hmm. his dad turns to him and, and, and essentially says like, you know, you gotta, sometimes you might have to hit a woman and Mm -hmm. you know, he says, you never want to hit a woman, but sometimes you might have to. And you realize that in the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the value system, the broader value system that this neighborhood is operated on. And by extension, America in the 1950s, yeah, you know, women are can be abused and children can be abused uh, to a certain extent. And like where that line is drawn is the question. And um that's really fucked up, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's totally, yeah. that's sort that of the, the problem. In the book. I it's incredible, it the most yeah. It's a well-written scene because uh, at the yeah. end, you know, Davy is saying to himself, "So is this never or is this sometimes?" Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, even presenting those as a dichotomy, I thought was was really well done. Yeah. So you've read this book ten times, Stephen? I I have yes. I've, I've I've signed it to a lot of students, and I've I used to keep a stack of them in my office that I would just hand out to people, but I just checked and they're all gone. But I've still got my I've got a big, nice, fancy special edition one that I keep. I don't give that one out. I've got I've got <laughs> the on Kindle Special too. edition isn't isn't illustrated. I I presume. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. No, no. <laughs> Hope to God. So no. when you read it all these different times, are you looking for something yeah. different? Are you looking for yourself to see the architecture of how he does it? Mm. I'm looking for the architecture. I'm looking for tricks I can steal, but every single time I read it, I fall under the spell of this book, and I forget to look for tricks. I'm just faced with the horror, and my response is to reel back instead of to look deeper at the craft, at the mm-hmm. stitches, at the seams. And has it changed for you being the father of young boys? No, not really, because I was a young boy myself, so I know right. how stu- stupid we can be. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you did tell us a story earlier about cutting your own foot off. So, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> so have you guys here, read here. Room by De- Emma Donahue? Have we talked about it before? Room with, about the room. little boy and, and the woman who yeah. are trapped in their room for five years, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. similar book too, but completely. Di- I mean, I think we've talked about it, but. Uh, if, for the listeners, if you haven't read it, it's another. It's more suspense than horror, but it's told from the point of view who of a five-year-old boy who's been captive in a similar rape torture situation, but he doesn't know any other reality, so it's told from his point of view. So the language is really weird, but I mean that's a really different other other way to look at a story like this of you know watching the victims themselves analyze and attempt to escape their situation mm-hmm. well it's an really even more extreme book. comparison to me is is flowers in the attic which mm-hmm. begs the question like what is worse 
is it worse to write a book like Flowers in the Attic, which essentially becomes a 12-year-old, like, romance mm -hmm. between a brother and a sister, and a, such a ridiculous, over-the-top soap opera melodrama version of something like this? Mm -hmm. Or is it better to, like, you know, ha read a book like this, like Girl Next Door, which is just rubbing your face in the true, awful realism of it? Like, I, w I wouldn't want my kid to read either but you know in some ways it's like girl in the attic i mean flowers in the attic is is almost less responsible because mm -hmm. in a way it's glorifying horrible horrible things mm -hmm. like i mean when we read we reread that book for this show mm -hmm. Stephen, and mm -hmm. we were amazed that like you know where the brother essentially rapes his sister in that book mm -hmm. it's not like that and then she rationalizes it and forgives him and says you can't help yourself you're a boy and it's such a fucked up world view and to think that 11 year old mm -hmm. girls read that book all the time because their mom or whoever doesn't mind because it's flowers mm -hmm. in the attic and it has this sort of like for whatever reason this status um i would almost rather maybe my kid read girl next door <laughs> Well, yeah, no, the thing about flowers I, I in the attic comparatively is that flowers in the attic is written in such a romantic way you know, right. that that's the difference is that he what Jack Ketchum's doing isn't isn't making it flowery. And there's a sense of foreboding the entire time. And there's no the, the rationalization seems like a human rationalization. I was 12. I didn't know what to do. I just did mm -hmm. the worst thing I could possibly do. Whereas Flowers in the Attic, it's you know, it's couched in this weird, florid language. And it, I mean, it, it was a romance novel, basically, for people to yeah. read. Um, yeah. And you know what I'm interested in is the movie version of this. Have you seen the movie, Stephen? Yeah. How is yeah, it? The, the, it's pretty good. It's really pretty faithful to this. It changes a little, the end a little bit, but um, it's really, it's really a tight movie. It's uncomfortable to watch, as it should be. Yeah. Because I think too much, too much of the torture porn on the scene now makes you want to watch it and i think that's not the right response to to mm -hmm. that kind of content that kind of material i think you should be repulsed mm -hmm. and you should you should learn something about yourself or about humanity as in a large and yourself in particular kind of um but no it's, it's a really tight movie yeah hey let, let me ask uh writer a question here since you've been in movies where you've been tortured mm -hmm. um <laughs> when you're when you're in a film like that you know how 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 do you, as just a normal, rational human being, how do you say, "All right, I'm going to be, I'm going to be part of this thing for entertainment purposes"? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know. You know, the last horror movie I was in was years ago, um, and like I was 21 or 20 when we did Cabin Fever, and that was just fun. You know, we were just like, mm -hmm. "This is, this is." It was, it was all sort of. I mean, I wouldn't say the whole movie is tongue-in-cheek, but there's a level of, like, awareness mm -hmm. that we were, like, going back to an earlier type of film that hadn't been done in a long time. The sort of, like, R, hard R horror film hadn't been done at that point. You know, that was, like, the age of the ring and sort of, right. like, a more, um, you know... Or we were coming out of Scream, really, when you think about it. Like, the, the, the idea of a horror film where you just actually show the tits and the blood and you gross the audience out, like, that wasn't around um at the time mm -hmm. so we were sort of like oh this is fun this is like a it's, it was sort of an in joke i guess mm -hmm. uh, is the easy and then um the other one where i was really tortured in <laughs> was <laughs> borderland and mm -hmm. and it's interesting because when we were filming borderland in a lot of ways it was in response to the movement that had started with cabin fever and saw and the director of that film um zev berman you know he wanted 
he wanted to go for realism in a way that he felt was necessary, similar to what Steven just said. Like, he wanted it to be awful. And his whole take was, you know, let's not do this, what Saw movies are doing, which is sort of making it fun to watch. I want this to be awful to watch and, you know, have realistic characters. And, re and so I, as an actor, sort of got on board with that vision mm -hmm. for that movie. So they were actually, you know, like the two most popular horror films that I did at the time were very different approaches that almost have the same result um, in the sense mm -hmm. that, you know, they get picked up by the horror audience and, and, those, and, the, and the way the mainstream... Uh, critics consider both those films as probably the same category. You know, mm -hmm. it's like 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 Stephen was saying. It says, "Oh, it's all horror," um, mm -hmm. but the truth is, there is there. You know, there are differences. There are nuances, mm -hmm. and sometimes really important nuances. Um, and I I don't know where I stand on on both. Like I I think the Saw movies can be very fun. Like I thought mm -hmm. the first one was very clever and fun. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's just sort of like I don't I don't think you're supposed to take it that seriously right. when somebody has to saw their own leg off in such a stupid circumstance. You know, it's like <laughs> again, it's just so over the top. You, um, you say to the man who intentionally cut his foot off to win three dollars yeah, that's <laughs> real Steven. so Steven's like saw I mean, is just instructional <laughs> so i i'm so interested because i feel like i'm having a different reaction to this book than you guys and what i'm thinking about as i'm hearing you talk is you know it's so gendered and i feel like it's hard for me to enjoy this book on any level because i'm not looking at it from the point of view of like look what I could have done in another reality. Mm -hmm. It's look what could have happened to me, right. you know, at many oh, points in my life. Yeah. And that is wildly different horror experience um, mm -hmm. for women and someone who was, you know, a stupid, you know, like being a stupid girl is different than being a stupid boy. You know, you know you what I was can, thinking about, Julia? Anything can happen to you. When, what? Uh, two episodes ago, when we did Excavation by Wendy Ortiz, she is... Remember, we read that scene aloud where she was tied up, bound and gagged by the guy that was molesting her, her teacher, right. while another guy just stood there. I mean, so, I mean, it's it's completely within the realm of possibility. And I think that's why it is so horrifying, yeah. male or female, but specifically for female, because that shit happens. Right. Yeah, and it's but you too think close. Julia that it's you're, too close. you but you think that your enjoyment yeah. of the book is just completely different than like the way that we read it. Um, I mean, I definitely don't like, <laughs> I'm, it was well-written. It was definitely, I think the pacing is by far the best thing about the book. I agree with that, mm -hmm. but I would not right. say that I enjoyed the experience of reading it on no. any <laughs> level. Yeah. I, I would not um, say I enjoyed even, it either. <laughs> and, and you guys, no. and you guys know me. I mean, Steven doesn't, but like, I'll read mm -hmm. anything, you know, and mm -hmm. it was just like, oh, I mean, it's not like I've never thought about what it would be like to be in that situation or, you know, Sharon Tate mm -hmm. or any serial killer thing that I've read about or heard about, you know, I naturally empathizing with like the woman or the young woman's point of view. So it's really, it's hard to read. Like, I think a lot of women must have, I mean, everyone would have a hard time reading this, but mm -hmm. anyone mm -hmm. who's been in any kind of, you know, power dynamic situation where they were unable to ask for help and abused mm -hmm. in that way is it's really 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 difficult to read yeah. you know um i think I'm, I'm trying to think in response to that what's the most boy part of this whole book and i think it comes really early on it's that long i believe it's an italics sex section where he's kind of doing a dramatic monologue to ruth right at the at the end of it he says here's your check cash it in hell i mm -hmm. think that to me is the most boy mm -hmm. part because we're, we're trained on the action movies to have a quip like that to tell the bad guy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> See That's you in hell. 
there there was part of me that was thinking this is like a really really fucked up Huckleberry Finn in the sense (laughs) that it's you know the way Huckleberry Finn Finn is fucked up as it is well but the whole thing well because the whole part of Huck's development is it's his moral development right Right. so the idea is that he's grown up too fast but he has doesn't have the moral character to stand up to slavery you know or you know an escape help an escaped slave and that the whole book is built into that moral moment where he finally says to hell with all of them i'm gonna do the wrong thing which mm-hmm. in this case is the right thing and it felt very similar to i was like oh my god it's the same coming of age story except that we got dragged through the mud mm-hmm. for so long in order to get to what is a very slight moment of her heroism you know right. it's mm-hmm. like too much too little too late and you're just so mm-hmm. disappointed in your own narrator and yourself, because you waited this long and you made it through the book this far. I mean, that's why it's such a genius construction that your complicit, your complicity, complicitness, whatever that the the form of that word is, is it's really uh, it's so delicately built, and it's it really um, it made me feel awful. Yeah, like it made me feel morally um, like I had done something wrong by by reading this book and by continuing to read the book. Um, I I kept feeling worse and worse about myself, and that is a really it's true though. I'm being honest, and like that is a really fucked up feeling to have. And I I feel better about it now that I can like talk to you guys about right. it. If I read this book on my own, and like you know closed it and looked over at my wife sleeping next to me, like I feel like a horrible person. Right. And like there's a re- there's a weird issue there. Like I'm never gonna be one to say you know censorship or this book shouldn't be read or shouldn't be read because I was the kid that read everything that adults told me not to read, and I'm so glad I did. But at the same time, man, I. I like I don't want this book in my house and that's a really <laughs> like I also just like I was trying to think of of what would be a book that 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 shouldn't be written you know or that that I wouldn't want to read that I wouldn't read like what would a book be right. like okay if somebody said I wrote a book that is um a really really detailed realistic account of what it was like to be uh in um uh you know in a holocaust camp from a Jew perspective and like this will be really great read and you you won't believe like no like I wouldn't want to read that book and I and I feel like there would be so much moral outrage at the writing of that book oh but there's a thousand yet, books like this, that are there of course. I've never heard Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Holocaust fiction is big. It's huge. You know, I think in I think what the, circles? <laughs> like not the Jews. What are we talking about? <laughs> no, but I mean, like, what were you gonna say, Stephen? Go ahead. I think the book that shouldn't be written is the book that has been written a lot of times following The Girl Next Door. It's a book in which the writer, the next writer, feels challenged to think of a series of the worst things he or she can, and to string them together, just like porn, mm-hmm. just like a key scene, key scene, key mm-hmm. scene. But what so many writers forget is that Jack Ketchum had that uncomfortable core. Like it's, you're right. It's not a core about spectacle. It's not actually a. It's not not a core about torture. It's a core about our own moral corruption mm-hmm. at the center of it. I think, mm-hmm. and he has that, and I think very few other people have been able to confront it in fiction that effectively, and such that it compromises us and makes us, like writer was saying, complicit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of wish, do you guys, maybe I'm just profoundly disturbed. I mm-hmm. wish that there was no moment of heroism. Mm-hmm. No, I wish the, it had what, just what, what, ended like right. the real incident ended. Mm-hmm. I agree right. that, that, that moment at the end where he, you know, gets the ring back and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That feels like, um, that feels like a part of the novel. That feels like the novel superseding the the story that's the story that's trying to happen mm-hmm. you know it's like right. it feels like it feels like 
well, we got to have a plot point here. We got to have a rise here. It feels like that. Um, however, had Ketchum left us there, I don't know if this book could have been published. Been, would it, yeah, yeah, I don't think it would have been. No, because there yeah. there has you to gotta, be yeah. there has to be some glimmer of redemption at the end, or else it's uh-huh. it's just. It, it, yeah. You know, no publisher's going to say, yeah, I just want a book where a bunch of little kids rape a, a woman and then kill her. I mean, yeah. that you might get that now, but it would be American Psycho. And people would say yeah. it's black comedy, yeah. but this is obviously not black comedy. Mm-hmm. So there has mm-hmm. to be that turn at the end. And and I that's mm-hmm. the only time where I felt the hand of the writer yeah. saying, yep. I got to I gotta redeem something here. Exactly. And you know, and what's what's funny is that the little dynamic by which he gets us to side with Davy mm-hmm. as a as a kid anyways, because or maybe he's getting us to side with David actually, because there's that chapter where they're doing the the burning clitorectomy to Meg oh, and Jesus. he sa- he says the, the the complete chapter is I'm not gonna say this part. Right. And he just that it's like one sentence and we as readers are so thankful because we did not want to have to see that. And that allies us with him, but that just all, that's a wonderful trick to play on us because it makes us like him. It makes us champion him and we should never be championing Davy or David, I don't mm-hmm. think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Wow. Well thank you I think, Stephen, for bringing to us the most horrific possible book here for our Halloween episode of Literary Disco. Um, I I think if uh, you are under, say, 30, don't buy the book. Um, if you're over 30, I don't really think you need to buy the book necessarily either. Um, I, I know we have a lot of kids that listen to the show, and if you're a kid... This is one of the few books that I just don't think is appropriate for a 15-year-old to read. You have now sold so many books. I know. I know. Wow. That's I the know. thing. We should just downplay how horrible yeah. this is. It's, ah, it's just a little horrible. <laughs> I'll tell, tell you what, this is a lot like Wizard of Oz, but um, yeah. the Tin Man fucks Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Wow. And that's the quote of the episode. <laughs> Well, I'm going to be on Wikipedia all night. Anyone else? Yeah. I kind of, I only did the Wikipedia of the main, like the main page about the case. I didn't dive into the whole thing like uh, Todd you've, clearly did. You've got to look for the picture of the real mother. It is really creepy. And that's going to do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we return to our regularly scheduled program of Gabriel, a poem by Edward Hirsch. Literary Disco is produced, edited, and saved every episode by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. Yeah.